if you would, to John chapter 7, very end of the text, and stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. <clears throat> Our text this morning is John seven fifty three through John eight eleven. We'll look this morning uh, at one of the most very unique passages in all of the Scriptures. <clears throat> it's one of few passages or pericopes, and a pericope is simply just a theologian's fancy term for a specific passage of text. But this particular passage has its own name. It's been known for centuries as the pericope adulterae, or the woman caught in adultery. As we will soon see, these 12 verses are some of the most discussed, debated, yet dearly revered and loved portions of the New Testament. So read with me now, beginning in John 7.53. They went each to his own house, now from 8.1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older one, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. As we look at this revered story in your inerrant word this morning, may these words be as fresh today as when we first heard or read them. May we see afresh our sin, hear afresh your call to repentance, and marvel afresh at what you love to do, Lord Jesus. Save sinners while foiling the works of the devil. Speak to us by your Spirit, we pray, together. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> As mentioned, these 12 verses this morning are indeed controversial. Your Bible most likely has some notification in brackets somewhere. You may have a note that says something to the effect that this section is not included in the oldest or even best manuscripts. 
or just the opposite, my study Bible, a New King James Bible, as if to defend its inclusion, says, quote, this text appears in over 900 Greek manuscripts of the book of John, although some doubt its authenticity. So the debate goes. Although tempting, I think it would be unwise to delve directly into the exegesis and teaching of the text without at least a brief explanation of what we're dealing with here. It's important to know before we start that the vast majority of Reformed scholars, including Augustine, Luther, Calvin, uh, in this debate, the debate is not whether this text is included as Scripture or not. The debate is, the debate is primarily around two things. One, did the Apostle John actually write this? And two, if he did, does it belong here? Augustine and Luther say yes and yes. Calvin is not sure where it belongs, but it surely uh, believes it's Scripture. This was also not an issue with the Puritans, Westminster Divines, Knox, or the Scottish Presbyterians. For my money, I'm absolutely convinced it belongs right here. Yet I do think we need to appreciate the good work done in this advanced age of scholarship. But even now, we are in good hands, I'm confident, with the words of R.C. Sproul. R.C. says, The overwhelming consensus is that this account is both authentic and apostolic, and should be contained in any edition of the New Testament. I believe it is nothing less than the Word of God. Whether it belongs here in chapter 8 of John's Gospel, or at the end of the 21st chapter of Luke, or somewhere else in John's Gospel, I will leave this to the ages. But I treat this as nothing less than the very Word of God. I don't know about you, but for me, debates like this make me doubt less the, uh, do not make me doubt less the authority nor the veracity of the Bible. Just the opposite. Matters of textual criticism, the preservation, and the comparisons of manuscript families make my belief stronger in knowing that we miraculously have right now exactly in our hands, what the Lord would have us to have. So, as is our custom here at Redeemer, let's go through this preserved and inerrant text verse by verse. And doing so, we'll uncover in our text under these three headings. First, a soul-sickening, sinister setup in verses 1 through 6. Second, we'll see a soul-seeing Savior's solution, 6 to 9. And finally, a soul-sensitive sinner's salvation in verses 10 through 11. So first, a sinister setup. There are several accounts in the Word of God of things so evil and so horrendous that it can even make the most hard-hearted human being squirm. 
I think of Jezebel, queen of Israel, who having all that a queen could want to possess, had one thing that she didn't have. She didn't have her neighbor Naboth's small vineyard. He wouldn't sell. So she trumps up false charges against Naboth, has him executed, and steals his vineyard. Heartless. Or we think of King Herod, when he realized he's been outwitted by the Magi, he makes a decree that every boy ages two and under in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas should be killed. These are examples of the worst kind of sinful abuse of power and disregard for human life. The kind that God sees and doesn't tolerate. And you'll recall God personally had his hand in both the deaths and the disposal of each of the bodies. Jezebel in 1 Kings 21 is thrown out the window and her body, the scripture says, is eaten by wild dogs. King Herod is killed directly in Acts 12 by the angel of the Lord and his body eaten by worms. However, I believe what we see in our text this morning just might be worse than either of these two cases. What we have here in John chapter 8 is the religious leadership of Israel, the Pharisees, whom we saw last week in chapter 7 trying to have Jesus arrested and apprehended at the Feast of Tabernacles, but they were unsuccessful. So frustrated, so filled with hatred, they concoct a scheme, a conspiracy, a setup, evil, yet at the same time diabolically brilliant. Let's start at chapter 7, verse 53, and see this plot unfold. They went each to each they went each to his own house, but Jesus, verse 1, went to the Mount of Olives. We're getting here the first of a pattern that our Lord will use throughout the rest of his life until he's finally captured, put on trial, and killed by these same men. A pattern of staying and living outside of the city overnight, coming into the city, Jerusalem, to teach in the mornings, and going through the Mount of Olives, also outside of the city, to rest and to pray in between. We don't know if this night Jesus actually slept outside, but as his pattern, he shows up in the temple the next morning, first thing, the people knew he would be there, and so did the Pharisees. Look at verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. What courage our Lord shows here. As the day before, he was hounded, and attempts were made to apprehend him, but he's not phased in the least. He comes right back to both teach and to be confronted. The people, and us as we're reading the narrative, 
do not know any of the details of this plot that was hatched in the night. We are witnesses as they arrive with their trap. Look at verse 3 to 5. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now, it's very interesting that this text starts the scribes and the Pharisees. The fact that John uses the word scribes here is one of the arguments against the fact that he did not write this text. Because he uses that phrase nowhere else in his gospel. So therefore, somebody else must have written this text. But scribes are the first dead giveaway of this evil plot. It's exactly what he should have said. Who were the scribes? The scribes were experts in the law. They could be Pharisees or not Pharisees, but they were the interpreters of the law, the ones who would make rulings. The Pharisees hatched this scheme with the help of the scribes. Their interpretation would be part of what they decided to do. Look at the details of this conspiracy, literally dripping with evil. First, it's early morning, and here they come, the group of them as Jesus is teaching, making a show of the proceedings, and you can just see them coming, can't you? Interrupting. They haul this woman, frightened, most likely shaking, probably shackled, knowing what she has done and fearing that her life might imminently be over. The group comes probably carrying their stones with them. And the text says they place her in the midst. There was a video that was around the internet some years ago, three or four years ago, that showed a Muslim woman found guilty of blasphemy. Just like our scene is here, the group placed her in the middle so that she could not go. And we tend to think stoning, at least I do, uh, that there are these little kind of little rocks like you would throw into a, 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 a lake or something, and everybody just pelts them with these. But in this video, these were large stones, like this big of stones. The men could take them and throw them like this. The women who were also participating would have to take two hands and throw them but they're large enough to break bones. When they start the stoning, several are thrown, and one hits her in the head, and she immediately falls down. And then, smash, smash, smash! Within seconds, she's dead. These large stones just thrown down. Yes, it was violent, But the men and some of the women that were actually doing the stoning were unforgettable. Their rage, their yelling, their anger, their... They could not wait to kill 
this woman. This is what this woman is facing. Again, verse 3. Placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the, and your Bible might say, the very act of adultery. Describes their bearing witness of the legality. They go on in their arrogance. Now, the, now in the law, Moses commands us, they emphasize, to stone such women as these. So what do you say? Now verse 6 tells us exactly what we suspected from the beginning. Look at it. They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. As we analyze these verses and read what the actual law said, their scheme becomes crystal clear. Ancient Jewish legal process made it clear that this is nothing short of a setup. According to Jewish law, there were 36 sins or crimes that were punishable by death. And there were very strict guidelines as the Jewish law gave intricate rules of evidence in capital cases. There were 14 rules about the testimony from the witnesses for the accused to actually be stoned. Here are just a first few of them. For someone to be convicted of a capital crime in Israel, there must be two witnesses. And to be accepted as a witness, you must be an adult Jewish man who was known to keep the commandments knew the written and oral law, and had a legitimate profession. Two, the witnesses had to see each other at the time the sin was committed that they both must see. The witnesses had to be able to speak clearly without any speech impediment or hearing deficit. This was to ensure Uh, that the warning that they needed to give could be done. For both witnesses must give a warning called a hot traha to the person that the sin they were about to commit was a capital offense. The witnesses could not be related to each other or could not be related to the accused. And about eight more down is the final rule, and that is that these witnesses must be appointed by the court to be the executioners of the crime. Finally, the particular punishment and circumstances surrounding this stoning is laid out both in Leviticus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. Listen to what the law of Moses actually says. If a man is found lying with a wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman will be put to death. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. So if this woman was found in the very act, where is the man? 
At best, these witnesses let him get away. At worst, and probably so, he was part of the seduction and the conspiracy. Verse 5 says again, Now in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Women, what do you say? Our minds can spin to try to think of the logistics and how they actually did this. And there's a reason why the Lord doesn't give us these details. But if ever there was an evil, demonic plot, this is the one. No true regard for the law. No true regard for holiness. No true regard for biblical truth. And no true regard for human life. They would gladly participate in debauchery and destroy a woman if they thought their agenda of taking Jesus Christ down could happen. Does this not remind you of that famous scene in Zechariah chapter 3 when Joshua the high priest stands before the angel of the Lord with dirty clothes and Satan stands at his right hand accusing him before the angel of the Lord? In our narrative, the Pharisees are acting just like Satan. It is no wonder that these men will stop and do not stop for anything until Jesus Christ is dead. And it brings new meaning to uh, to verse 44 in this chapter that we'll see later when Jesus says, You are of your father, the devil. You are the very children of God. Satan, Jesus says to these men. Now, before we're too critical of these Pharisees, and, they, and we need to be, we need to think of our own hearts and our tendencies to relish many times in the failures of others or being quick to delight in pointing out others' sins. You know, kids, listen here, for this is the sin of being a tattletale. It's one thing to let your mom and dad know if one of your brothers or sisters are actually doing something that could endanger themselves or others, but it's another thing, kids, to be a tattletale because you secretly want to get your brother or sister in trouble. You secretly delight in it. Kids, don't be tattletales. Love your brothers and sisters. This is truly a soul-sickening setup. But let's look at the Savior's solution. What would you do in that situation? It seems that Jesus has three options. One, he could urge forgiveness and he would, he would seem soft on sin and a violator of the law. Two, he could assent to having her immediately stoned to death, dissuading anyone else from coming to confess to him for forgiveness and his message of grace. Or he could simply refer it back to them for judgment, saying, this isn't my deal, it's your deal, thereby also assuring the immediate death of this woman. 
One commentator puts it very well, this predicament that Jesus is in. He says, so far as human reason can perceive it, it was the most profoundest moral problem which ever could be confronted even to God himself. The problem was how justice and mercy can possibly be harmonized. The law of the righteous imperatively demands the punishment of the transgressor. To set aside that demand would be to introduce a reign of anarchy. Moreover, God is holy as well as righteous, and holiness burns against evil and cannot allow that which is defiled to enter his presence. What then is to become of this poor sinner? So against such an attack, how would Jesus respond? How would we react? He responds, as we would suspect, with the brilliance being the sovereign Son of God. Just like the Word of God, who He is, He discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. Look at verse 6 again. This they said to test Him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. He turns away from everyone, writing on the ground. Now I hear your active minds at work. What did he write? Now the word here for write can mean anything. It can mean letters. It can mean pictures. It can even mean just scribbles. The answer is, I have no clue, and neither do you. Any guess is just speculation, and some have suggested that he wrote things like a list of sins of those who brought the woman. Some have said he just wrote the verse, Deuteronomy 22, 22, or maybe just wrote, the man and the woman should be put to death. Others think he wrote nothing, just ignoring the request, but it's working because they're anxious. They can't even stand it. Verse 7, as he's kneeling down, writing, they continue to ask him. And finally, he stands up and says to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then once again, he bends down to continue writing on the ground. Oh, can you even imagine the look? John Calvin says that the stare of the Savior was all it needed all they needed to walk away. He bends down the first time, gets up, confronts the schemers, and says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Luther says of Jesus' stare and his comment, quote, they claimed to be pure and holy, but they were trying to do nothing but pilfer the kingdom of Christ. And with his stare and words, he pours hot broth over their snouts as one does a thieving dog in the kitchen. <laughs> That's Luther. Amen. 
And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus calls their bluff. He won't answer them, but he shows them their own sin, knowing the law and knowing their own rules of evidence better than they do. They drop the stones, they put away their law books and their arrogance. He knows both who and what they are, and they cannot face him. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, Jesus knows us as well as he knew those trying to trip him. And the woman left standing in front of him. Again, kids, students, and adults, oh, the folly of actually thinking we can hide something from the Lord. We can't do it. The solution of the Savior leads to the saving, both temporally and eternally, of this sinner. Verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him, and Jesus stood up again the second time. He stands the second time and stares again. It's only he and the woman. This time, it's not a condemning, piercing stare and rebuke that he just gave the scribes and Pharisees. Oh no, this is a tender eye of mercy. And he said to her, woman, the same way he addressed his own mother. It's not a harsh but tender word. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. Oh, what words to hear from the Lord. One minute she's shaking, shackled, ashamed, ready to receive the blows that according to the law she deserves. Yet she hears the words we long to hear. Neither do I condemn you. The truth is, brothers and sisters, this woman has only brought one thing to the Lord, her sin. Luther, again, Jesus saves no saints, only sinners. If you have tasted the law and sin, and if you know the ache of sin, then look here and see how sweet in comparison the grace of God is. The grace which is freely offered to us in the gospel. 
This is the absolution which the adulteress receives here directly from the Lord Christ. We saw this, didn't we, in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Apostle Paul also in Romans 8, 1 through 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has sent you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How did Jesus bridge that gap? How does he not condemn but give mercy to those guilty and continuing to sin, guilty of the law, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, fully offered to us in the gospel. If you're here this morning and you are like this woman, you are caught. Like her, the stoning is ready to take place. You know you're guilty. You know what you deserve. You, like her, are being accused. Listen to that passage in Zechariah we alluded to earlier. Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. If ever there was a series of verses made for a refrigerator, these are it. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Israel rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments as the angel of the Lord was standing by. What a contrast. The high priest in the Old Testament, in the same place as a woman caught in adultery and us. Filthy garments, being accused by Satan. The Lord rebukes Satan, just as Jesus rebuked the scribes and Pharisees. And says, remove the filthy, filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away. Oh, come to him if you've never done it before. Even this morning, repenting and confessing. And hear those words of love and forgiveness. Neither do I condemn you. 
And so we come to the end of our text, this pericope adulterae, this much-loved, much-debated passage of Scripture. The ending is just as abrupt as it is classic, as Jesus says to the woman, go and sin no more. Not to receive, earn, or pay for anything, but as the only natural response to being accepted, love, and forgiven so much. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be your royal throne. It shall be your royal throne. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are yours. We love you, but help us to love you aright. We believe in you, but help thou our unbelief. We thank you for this timely passage. May we again revel in sins forgiven and in living a life of repentance, going to sin no more. In the name of Jesus, we pray together. Amen. Amen.